Uh, we continue uh, in our study of Romans, and uh, we will move uh, along in rather large chunks since uh, our time is uh, limited, uh, and some people take three, four years to get through Romans. We, we don't have that much time, so we're going to have to do some larger chunks. Uh, this morning, we're going to read verses 17 through 29. The transition here is from uh, Gentile believers uh, that Paul is saying uh, had the law written on their hearts, and he is helping the church in Rome to understand that because of the gospel and because of the freedom of what is happening through the gospel, that the old distinctions uh, that were both ethnic and religious between Jew and Gentile are being broken down. And that what matters is uh, a presence of the Holy Spirit, which is transforming a person's life and action in such a way that they act increasingly more and more like uh, their Lord and Savior. And so the uh, Gentile believers may not have had the act of circumcision, or they may not have had the privilege of growing up hearing the covenant stories and growing up uh, hearing scripture read in a synagogue, yet if they act in line with the law, the, Paul says that God honors that. And so now we're moving into a discussion of uh, the Jewish uh, part of the church in Rome, starting in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, that you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonoring God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision yet break the law. For no one is a Jew who merely is one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inward, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can rest in the assurance of a plan and of a God who exercises in the midst of each moment his sovereign grace and will. Lord, we pray that as we continue to look at Paul's letter to the Romans in this difficult section where we are challenged, as Paul challenged this church 2,000 years ago, 
We pray, Lord, that we would rest in the power of the Spirit and also, Lord, be empowered by the Spirit to do all that you have called us to do for your glory and honor. And whatever is said this morning that is not true and of the Spirit, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So both uh, providentially, uh, the Old Testament and New Testament reading from a lectionary this week did address this challenge of the human heart, whether it is Jonah's heart that is uh, hard against Nineveh and against uh, what Nineveh stands for as a people and as a nation that had really and truly been the enemy of Israel and the shock and horror and anger of Jonah that God would in any way show graciousness to the enemies of his people. This, of course, becomes an ongoing challenge in the New Testament as the early church wrestles with what does it mean for the Gentiles to be included, those who have regularly been, those who have oppressed us as your people, as your covenant people, Lord. How can we show mercy and grace to them? And then there is the part of our own hearts manifested in this always challenging parable of Jesus and the workers in the field. And I think last time we uh, looked at that text, I mentioned the fact that everybody would have known that the people you hire at the end of the day are the people who have one arm, who are exceedingly old and cannot keep up. That when you go out and you select day laborers, you select the ones that look like they can get the work done quickly and uh, produce the most profit possible for the farmer. And so if you're going back out to the market at two and three and four o'clock in the afternoon, those are not the young people who are going to produce the greatest amount of production. And so the, the challenge is not only that God is gracious in the way that he gives and treats people as equals, which is offensive when you've worked hard to be treated like one who couldn't, but it reveals the human heart that those who were in need, those who had not had an opportunity to work, and those who could never work if it was piecework, as fast or as hard as someone young, their families too would be taken care of. And our hearts are always pricked because our sense of fairness and our sense of equality makes that feel like somehow it strikes at the core of our understanding of our religion, that we have a God who treats people on the basis of what they can do. And so we come to this passage here in Romans, and we are again struggling with a God who both wants and desires for us to be able to respond to God's generosity with thank God, even if it's towards our enemies even if it's towards those we feel like have not earned as much grace or blessing or mercy as we have. And Paul starts this book of Romans very much focused on putting the Roman church in the proper context, whether they are primarily Gentile house church or a primarily Jewish house church or maybe one that was a blend of both. Paul is writing to this dozen, half dozen uh, small congregations in Rome trying to establish again the need for God's work 
and a recognition of who and what they are. And this is fundamental to Scripture. We are people who have the book of Genesis, which tells us very quickly that some of our greatest heroes had horrific failures. We are a people whose Old Testament book includes the book of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. These are stories of the nation of Israel's failures politically, socially, morally, and religiously. It never allowed Israel to believe that in some fashion or another, they had somehow transcended the tendency to reject the goodness of God and return to the slavery of sin in Egypt. There was an honesty in their history and an honesty in their recognition of who they are. And Paul, with the gospel, doesn't start editing out people's history. But fact, and says, no, your history defines and helps you understand the grace and nature of God, lest you become one who judges others. And so he comes here to the Jewish members of these congregations so that they are guarded against two great temptations that have been human temptations ever since we decided we would know good and evil by grabbing the fruit. The first is that we are better than. We will inevitably try and do math to make sure that we can comfort ourselves that we are better than, whoever that than is. But there's always somebody that I can find that is a little worse than me, one fashion or another. Or we just don't do math at all because then I don't know that there's a better than. I don't, maybe, I don't know, Evan, am I better than you in math? No. All right, so we won't do math. But in anything else, I can probably find somebody that I'm better than. And Israel regularly fell into the temptation of Jonah. We are better than. No, you are recipients of God's grace, and you should want to see others be recipients. You're not better than Nineveh. Would you like me to tell you, Jonah, of the story of your people during the Judges? Would you like me to tell you of what was going on in the northern and the southern kingdoms when Jonah was feeling like he was better than and could happily observe the destruction of a hundred and some odd thousand souls because he was better than? Do you think you're better than because you've been circumcised, because you've had the law, or do you find yourself doing the very thing. Now, Paul isn't suggesting that every Jewish person was stealing or every Jewish person was having an affair or every Jewish person was stealing from temples in one way or another. And this is the challenge we often face uh, as we wrestle with individual and corporate sins. But there is a reality that particularly as those who claim the light of Christ, when we sin, we sin in a way that the world sees and it impacts their view of who God is. It's not just the ministers falling, which is often devastating to the witness of Christ, but it is all of us. 
Paul is saying that there is not a person in the church who is exempt from bearing the name of Jesus in such a fashion that when we do the things we preach against, when we do the things that we believe bring light, and our response to being confronted with that is, ah, what about? Which is the second great temptation, right? Is that when I am faced with the fact that I'm not better than, evidence that I am like you and you are like me and I am like the Gentiles, well, I am a Gentile. Um, I am like whoever I would like to think I'm better than. The human temptation, of course, is to say, what about? It's what Adam does. Adam, who told you? Well, what about the fact that you made her and she tempted me? Eve, what did you do? Well, what about this snake? And what about, you see, the inability to let it sit, to address the sin. The question isn't whether or not we're going to sin. The question is, in what way do we deflect? We still live in a time where we comfort ourselves individually as a corporate church, even sometimes nationally, that at least we're not as bad as. And when we are confronted with our own challenges, but what about? What about? Paul is a man of the book a man who understands that his people came from a small and unimpressive group of slaves, that they were freed by the mighty act of a God, not because of anything they could do for themselves, but because of what needed to be done for them, a loving and redeeming God who brings freedom to his people and whose law is defined by love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So every time we read about this law, Jesus has already unpacked it for Paul and the rest of us in the Gospels. This law is a law that guards our hearts against those things which would rob us of freedom. And those things that when we're confronted by them, we should resist the temptation to say, at least I'm not quite as bad as somebody else, or to deflect, well, what about your sin? What about those other people? Paul wants to break the slavery that will not allow us to deal with our own need for Christ and the power that he gives us. And so in verses 17 through 24, these are current events. These are things the church in Jerusalem are wrestling with at this moment. That he's referring back to that litany of sins that he so uh, starkly laid out in verses 26 through the end of chapter one. All of those painful realities of how our own twistedness turns into not just a perversion of the gifts of sexuality, but also to our perversion of our interaction with one another. All manner of unrighteousness, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slanderers, haters of God. And that means functionally haters of God. It really doesn't much count if I say I don't hate God and then do things that regularly express a disdain for the divine in an unrepentant and defensive manner. 
verse 17 through 20, embodies Proverbs-like wisdom, an application of the law in a fallen world. Look, if you will, at verses 17 through 20 in chapter 2. You call yourself a Jew. You rely on it. Uh, you boast in what God is doing. Amen and amen, we should. Because you instruct from the law. Just think of Proverbs 8 and the, the presence of wisdom at the very foundation of creation. You who instruct in the very fabric and nature of reality itself, how God functions, the laws of morality, the laws of truth and love and righteousness, which are is embedded in nature and the rhythms of God as gravity is. God promises us time and time again that even when wickedness looks like it wins, righteousness will in the end be justified and be recognized as such. And wickedness that looks like it's getting away with everything will at some point be brought to an account by God. That's the deeper wisdom, not the pragmatic moment by moment. And so do you teach to people who are blind to the realities and nature of who God is, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish? Again, just think of all of the Proverbs language that talks about wrestling with the fool, the different kinds of fools that there are. There is the ignorant fool. There is the um, aggressive fool who seeks to judge the other. There is the malice fool who desires to see the others destroyed. All three of those fools are unpacked in Proverbs over and over again. verse 21 and 24. It is the reality that they are unrepentant hypocrites, as we talked about last week. The point is not God calling people to perfection in the sense that that is the only way in which his name will be praised, or that's the only way in which they will be saved. Paul tells us of our brokenness and sin and the great tradition of all of the prophets, and of all of the books written in the law, because it pleads with us to stop pretending that we're something other than what we are apart from the mercy of Christ. And if it, we are something new in Christ, then how easy it is to confess, to be laid open and bare, to not need better than or what about. Paul here quotes, at the end of verse 24 from Isaiah 52, verse 5. Putting, as the scholars tell us, at the very heart of his plea, the challenging call of the prophets who wrestled with Israel and praying against prayer and hope that by the power of the Holy Spirit, although Paul would die, thankfully at the hand of Gentiles and not the church, that God's people, by the Spirit would hear the words of the prophets. That that historical pleading with God's people to turn from those things that will destroy them towards light has not stopped. And so Paul says, it is true, as hard as it may be for you to hear Jewish believers in Jerusalem, I mean, sorry, in Rome, and around the diaspora of ancient Rome, God's name 
is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And Paul is not, and he doesn't go through a list of the 35 people he knows who have a good history of repenting and aren't the reason the Gentiles are blaspheming God. Interestingly enough, he doesn't. And so what he leaves is the Holy Spirit to rest with each one of us. And also recognizing that because of the nature of the body, we hold one another accountable. We encourage one another in the life of the gospel. And those who are heading towards darkness and slavery again are to be called back and to be reminded not to abandon the freedom they have in Christ. To repent and to follow him again. Verses 24 through 32 remind us of the power of what real circumcision looks like. Jew and Gentile alike can be circumcised by the Holy Spirit because it was always meant to be a matter of the heart. We've talked many times about how the, for the Jewish person, the, the center of a being is not the mind. We're not Greek. The center is the heart, and what you love determines what you will do. And the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more our actions are in line with him, and we are easy and quick to repent and shed those things which would rob us of our new heart's joy and life and strength. A circumcision of the heart, Paul says, is what makes us different. And it is something that happens, of course, by the Holy Spirit, verse 29 tells us. It is a work of the Spirit. It is the role, then, of a passage like this. When we feel a tendency to be defensive or to wonder if we've done enough, the Spirit answers both questions. One, the defensiveness. Why am I defensive? It's by grace that you have been saved, not by righteous things that we have done. What do I have to fear from confession and knowledge of even the worst of what I am? Whatever God means by His sovereign action to save us, He's never edited out the need for us to be saved. But then there is the pricking of a conscience before the Lord who reads that passage and says, Lord, I know I've failed. Can you still love me? And the answer of the Spirit comes back. It was always me changing your heart. And if you are pricked in conscience and wondering if, because of the litany of things that fall before you, you are still loved and cared for. It is verse 29 that reminds us that you were never going to circumcise your own heart. You were never going to have another human being fix your heart. It was always going to be, and always is, the gift of the Spirit. That His praise is from God and not man, is how we conclude. The Spirit then leads us, as it led Paul, not to be unashamed of the gospel, even when it confronted both Jew and Gentile in the disparity between the things they loved and protected and the things that God had called them to enjoy and share. 
his praise then is from God and not from man. And so as we contemplate how to unpack and apply a passage like this, may I encourage you simply that as we look at Paul's heavy words, that we rest first and foremost in asking ourselves the question, do I delight in the freedom that I have in Christ? Do I delight in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17? Because if you're like me, the answer is, I'd like to. Right? I'm going to say with Paul, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. So God be my strength. And a broken and contrite heart, the Lord never despises. And if we feel after reading these texts an even greater sense of angst and defensiveness, know that the Lord breaks those down and that there's nothing worth defending because even if people know who and what you are, it is God's pleasure and praise of you. Just like a small nation with really dysfunctional, founding members whose families were often a train wreck that we can't read to our younger children, enslaved in Egypt and redeemed and whining the entire time. If God can love people like that, then I know God loves me because I can't find any difference between me and the patriarchs, between me and the children of Israel in the desert. I'm fickle but God is faithful. And that's the freedom we have. That when we feel the world will judge us differently as we stand up for those things that are true of Christ, know that the world is always fickle in its judgment of you, its judgment of me, and its judgment of the church. But God be praised. He is faithful and his judgment never changes, nor does his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would again be merciful as we come to the end of yet another chapter. Lord, we know that when you put the mirror up, you also robe us in Christ. May we see and be grateful for what you have redeemed us from, that we might delight evermore in the robes we now wear. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.